I'd love to look with you this morning in the Gospel of John. So if you have a copy of the scriptures, you can turn there. The verses are also printed in your bulletin and should be on the screen behind me. We're back in the Gospel of John. This time we're in the second half of the book. So we're looking at chapter 12 this morning and we're going to read verses 12 through 19. And I'll tell you on the front end that we're going to think about this story together of Jesus entering Jerusalem. And here are the two points that we're thinking about as we go through these verses. Uh, The first one is this, nothing is overlooked. So I'm going to read these verses and then I'm going to explain to you as best I can what they mean. And that's the first heading we're going to talk about, nothing overlooked. And secondly, everything means something. Nothing overlooked and everything means something. Those are the things we're going to work through this morning. Listen to this. This is God's word. John 12, verse 12 through 19. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. Just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing? Look, the world has gone after him. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you that your story, what you are doing in the world is great. And we thank you that we get to look at a little glimpse of that story today. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would work into our lives the truth that is here in John 12. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would make Jesus irresistible to us. And that we would see you, Jesus, in your glory, in your beauty, and the willingness that you had to die in our place, to change us, to make us right with God so that we might live for you. Help us. Convince us that these things are true. Change our hearts. Lead us. Lead us. We pray this for your glory. We pray this for our good. Amen. Damon Giuseppe was a young man who hadn't played football since 2016. The last time he played football, he actually played at the junior college level, which means he only had the opportunity to play for a couple years. So after playing junior college, he decided he wanted to try to play at the Division I level, at the big programs. So he decided that he was going to travel around the country to get into the biggest programs that are out there. So he tried all the SEC schools, he tried the Big Ten schools, he thought if I can just show up at these different universities, I can tell them how great I am, I can show them my film, and maybe they will give me a chance to play. Well, he traveled, and none of those schools were the least bit interested in him. 
So he decided, well, I'll just keep trying to work out. So he went to the gym and he continued to train. He tried to improve his skills and nothing was happening. He even decided, you know, I'm going to start traveling to the other, uh, to the NFL teams. I'm going to go wherever I can just to see if, if they'll let me in. See if I can get a tryout. Nothing. He actually ended up homeless. He had no money. And had nowhere to sleep. Matter of fact, as the story goes, he actually slept outside the gym where he would go to work out. One of his friends that he was training with said to him, you know, I know where the Cleveland Browns are holding tryouts. So Damon thought, I'm going to show up. So he did a little research. He went to the complex where the Cleveland Browns were training. And of course, as he tried to get into the complex, he, met, he was met with management. And management said, who are you? And he said, I'm Damon Giuseppe. And they said, well, we don't know who you are. And he said, oh, well, I know the vice president of this organization. He'd done a little research. So he convinced management that he actually knew the vice president of the Cleveland Browns. He didn't. They let him in the doors. He went onto the field. He tried out. He caught passes. He ran the 40-yard dash. And for those of you that you know, know anything about football or speed, he ran the 40 in 4.38. Ain't nobody in this room can run that fast. Not us on our best day. That is lightning speed. That is so fast. 4.4 is good time. 4.5 is good time. 4.3 is elite. Well, he tried out. They thought he could run pretty fast. He could catch pretty well. So they said, you know what? You can come back next week. So he showed back up. He performed well. So they actually put him on the roster for their first preseason game. And in that preseason game, Damon Giuseppe ran an 86-yard punt back for a touchdown. The entire team ran out on the field and just mobbed. It was just a mob. Everybody jumped on top of him. Everybody was so excited because this guy who didn't even play football for three years, was able to get into the stadium and try out. As a matter of fact, when he ran the punt back, the story is also told that before the game, he didn't even have cleats. And he went to the star receiver for the Cleveland Browns, Odell Beckham, and said, hey, I don't have any cleats. And Odell said, here, take these. So he actually ran the punt back on Odell's cleats. Now, we all love this kind of story, right? We love this story because it's a feel-good story. It's a story of an underdog that tries to make it, who gets breaks. We love this story even perhaps because it's a little bit mischievous. Here's a guy that didn't know a vice president and yet told people he did, convinced them enough to get him in the door. We love these kind of stories. We love stories. Because in some way, and in many ways probably, we can connect. We can relate. We can relate to rejection. We can relate to wanting to do something and yet getting shut down in all kinds of ways. Well, this morning, I want us to look at this story in John 12. I want us to look at the story of Jesus entering Jerusalem. And again, we're going to think about these two points. Nothing is overlooked and everything means something. So let's work through that. Nothing is overlooked. 
When you read back through this story, it's important to realize that every part of this story is all leading us to one particular point because it fits within the whole point of John's gospel. And because we haven't looked at this in a number of months, I thought it was good to recap. If you have your Bibles or if you don't, you can remember this or go back and look at it. Remember the point of John's gospel. Look in chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. You can write that down. You can go back. John tells you why he recorded these stories for us. He says, you know, there are a lot of things that were written about Jesus that I didn't record here. There are a lot more things that Jesus said. There are a lot more things that he did. But I wrote down these things for you that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that by believing, you might have life in his name. This is why we're thinking about life with Jesus this year, because all of John's gospel, all 21 chapters, are all for this particular purpose of, so that we can understand life. And that we can understand what life in Jesus actually is. So just real quick, remember looking back at John chapter 1. God is so committed to his people. Even before time, God was working out a plan to save his people. To commit himself in his glory and his power to redeem his people. And then in chapter 11, just hitting some highlights, you might remember a few months ago, we looked at the story of Jesus and Lazarus. Remember that was telling us that Jesus has power over death, that Jesus has power to raise the dead. And that's important for us as we get into John 12, because Jesus is the one who has life, eternal life, life that's more powerful than death. And when you look at verses 17 and 18 and 19 of John 12, what you find out is that Lazarus was walking around. And people knew that he had been dead. And they knew that Jesus had the power to raise him to life. And people were proclaiming and declaring and bearing witness over and over and over that, that Jesus did this. And they were excited about who Jesus was and excited about what he was doing. This is why as Jesus enters Jerusalem, there's this great crowd because they knew that this is the Christ. This is the one that raised this man, Lazarus. And they were excited about his power. And they were telling others about this power. They were telling others, look, Lazarus used to be dead just a few days ago and now he is alive. And if you look at Matthew's account of this story, back in Matthew chapter 21, what you find out is right before Jesus enters Jerusalem, he actually does a little bit more healing. And people start to cry out and say, son of David. They start to claim Jesus as the son of David, which means for our language and in our understanding, what they're saying is, this is the guy that everything in the Old Testament has been pointing to. This is the one. This is the final king of the universe. All the prophecies that were going on and, and declared about someone coming from David's line, that, that's Jesus. Jesus is the one. 
So Jesus is entering Jerusalem to this swell because people knew Lazarus was alive. Others had said, this is the son of David. This is the final king of the universe. This is the one that we have been waiting for. Now, it's also fascinating to notice that John seems to want us to slow down and think about this. Matter of fact, we can even ramp that up. God wants us to slow down and think about all of this. The reality of what's happening. The reality of Jesus entering in Jerusalem and what that would mean. God wants us to slow down. Let me tell you why. What we're looking at here in John 12 through basically 21 is the last week of Jesus' life. Everything in these chapters is, is leading to the craziest weekend in the history of the world. And John dedicates almost 50% of his book to this last week of Jesus' life. In other words, he doesn't want us to miss anything, nothing overlooked. He wants us to understand that everything is about life with Jesus. And this part of the story, 12 through 21, the last week of his life, he spends almost half of the book on it. And we're going to spend 13 weeks basically looking at seven days. Because God wants us to slow down. He doesn't want us to overlook anything. And even more than that, Jesus is in charge of every detail. Jesus is in charge of every detail. He has planned out this entry into Jerusalem. How many of you have made lists before you go out of town? You do that? Yep, I see some hands. I see them. How many of you that are in school, you make lists before you go to school? If nothing else, aren't, I know just in the last couple of weeks going to uh, open house. One of the reasons why you go to open house and talk to the teachers is because you find out what uh, supplies you need, right? Parents? So you find out what supplies you need from your teachers, and then you take your kids to the store, and they have all this, they have this list. Well, I need three notebooks for this. I need files with paper, pencils, on and on and on. We make lists all the time. How many of you have lists for your work week? Yep. Before I got out of town for a couple weeks on vacation, John Paul and I sat down, and we made a list of things that needed to get done when I was gone. I think we came up with close to 100 things. It was a lot. It was a long list. We make lists all the time. You know why we make lists? We don't want to overlook anything. We don't want to miss anything. Jesus has planned every detail of what's going on. You know, I used to read this section. I used to read this story. I used to read this account of Jesus entering Jerusalem. I used to think to myself, wow, Jesus enters Jerusalem and, and people are really excited to see him. And people are really excited about what's going on. And yeah, some of that's true. Although by the end of the week, it seems as though some in this crowd have gone the opposite direction to what they think of Jesus. And I know all that's telling us something. I know all that's telling me something. And I used to think, you know, Jesus was just doing this and people were excited. What I began to realize when you start looking at what's going on more deeply is that he's actually planned every detail. You realize that when you go back and read the accounts, 
Jesus actually told his disciples where to go to find the donkey. He told them where to go. Go to this village, go to this house. He even told them what to say and what the guy would respond as they told him why they were there. Jesus planned every little detail of this event. He knew the crowds were testifying that he had raised Lazarus from the dead. He knew this was a big moment in which he would enter Jerusalem. He knew that because his entire life was about serving his father. And his entire life and every detail was about heading to the cross. And here he is planning everything. Everything is planned. What to say, when to arrive, how to approach. You see, Jesus was making a statement. Jesus was being intentional with every detail of what's happening in this story. Everything. Now, I guess that leads us right right into this. Everything in this story then absolutely means something. Jesus doesn't overlook anything, and everything that occurs means something. The first thing that it means is that everything that's happening here is fulfillment of God's word. If you go back through and look at verse 13 and verse 15, you'll find that what's quoted and stated and what people are shouting, what people are saying, goes back to things that were written hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before this moment on Sunday in March. Hundreds of years. The quote is made from Psalm 118. There's a quote from Zechariah. Zechariah was written 500 years before this moment. Everything that's happened is fulfillment of what God says. Now what's encouraging when we read that is when you look back through these verses, you realize, look at verse 16, the disciples didn't even understand these things. When they first happened, they didn't really know what was going on either. But after Jesus was glorified, after these seven days, after his crucifixion and resurrection, they started to put some things together. They started to think back through things that God had said prior to this moment, things that God had written in the Old Testament. They started to realize, oh, oh yeah, everything that just happened these last seven days was part of God's plan. It's what God said. Oh, Jesus was being super intentional with everything that he was doing. He was the fulfillment of everything that our Heavenly Father said. It all comes true because God said it. What this story also tells us is something about our king. It tells us something about King Jesus. I mean, think about it. Here he is entering in Jerusalem. People are saying that he's king. A king comes into Jerusalem on a donkey. What? A king enters Jerusalem on a donkey? Like a general of an army would enter into battle on a donkey? What? Why not a stallion? Why not something more than a donkey? No king should ride on a donkey, right? That's what we would think. 
We would think he should come in on some great, big, powerful thing. Maybe we can think of it this way. I don't know of a single Green Beret that would engage his mission in a Prius or a Kia. I don't, I don't know a, a single Navy SEAL that would carry out his mission using a pontoon boat or a sea dew. I don't know that at all. This is not what we expect at all. We expect something much greater. You see, this is telling us something about King Jesus. It's telling us something about what it means for Jesus to be king and what he thinks of when he thinks of being a king and how a king should be. So as the crowds are saying he's king and as he is saying, yes, I am, he is also telling us this is what it means to be king. You see, Jesus is unbelievably humble and compassionate and caring. Do you remember when we looked at John 4 with Jesus talking to the woman at the well and how caring he was with her? How he would ask her questions? How he knew more about her life than she could ever imagine? Remember her testimony was, this man told me everything I've ever done? Jesus was incredibly tender, incredibly compassionate. Remember the story of Lazarus? He dies and his sisters are overwhelmed with grief and Jesus shows up and he weeps with them. Now remember, he knew he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead and yet he enters into their experience. He enters into their lives. He weeps with them. He is even angry at what has happened because he hates death far more than they do. He hates death far more than we do, and he is the only one that can do something about it. Jesus is unbelievably compassionate, unbelievably humble, and at the same time, at the same time, Jesus is not a fake. He is not one bit inauthentic. Jesus is both humble and absolutely authentic. Think about all the claims that Jesus has made. Think about everything that he's been doing. He's the one that forgives sins. Yep. Yes, I do. Does he claim a special, unique relationship to God in heaven? Yes, he does. I and the Father are one. Take that in. This is Jesus. He's unbelievably humble and at the same time absolutely true and real and authentic. He also claims to forgive sin. He's the one that claims a special relationship with the Father. He's the one that has power over death. And he hasn't shied away from saying any of that. And here he is coming in Jerusalem. People are saying, are you king? And he says, you bet. <laughs> See, that means something for us. That means something profound. That he is both compassionate and caring and at the same time absolutely honest. Because it reminds us that we have to take him seriously. You can't think of Jesus as a good luck charm. I can't think of Jesus as a good luck charm. I can't think of Jesus as this miracle pill. 
that when I get down and out, I just need him because he's the kind of guy that never wants me to suffer or go through anything that's hard, and therefore, I just need him when I'm really down. We can't think of Jesus that way. He won't let us. You can't read him in the gospel accounts and think, oh, well, he's just this unbelievably compassionate person who always cares. Stop. He does care. He is unbelievably compassionate, but he's also going to tell you, I'm the, one who can, I'm the only one who can deal with sin. I am in special relationship with God. I am God. I'm the one who has power over the death. I'm the one who is the true king. We have to take Jesus seriously. We can't just think of him as this guy from the Middle East that just hangs out and just does stuff. He is unbelievably powerful and unbelievably humble. And he comes into Jerusalem as king on a donkey. You see, Jesus, in order for him to be king, it means that he demands everything, everything from us, everything. There's nothing that we can hide from him, nothing that we can keep from him. There's no segment of our lives that he does not own, nothing. As king, he is Lord over it all. And he does that through humility. He does that through riding into town as king on a donkey. This is the story that we all need to be a part of. See, this whole entrance into Jerusalem, his declaration that he's king, planning every detail, telling us about life, everything, everything here. This is the greatest story that we all need to be a part of. This is the story of sin and redemption. This is the story of sin and redemption. You see, this is a way we can think about sin. Sin is when we perpetually, habitually try to be God. That's what sin is. Sin is when we're trying to be God. We try to define what's right and wrong for ourselves. We try to define purpose and meaning apart from him. We try to do anything apart from him and apart from what he says. Sin is whenever in our thoughts or our words or our deeds, whenever we try to be God. And the story of redemption, the message of Jesus, the purpose of Jesus is this. God becomes man. And what he does is that he does what we should be doing. He endures what we deserve. We're always trying to be God, and yet God becomes man. That's what Jesus did. You see, sin is when uh, we who are created to be servants, sin is when we as servants try to be king. And the good news is that the real king came to be a servant. You see that? Does that grip your heart? Because we are so bent on wanting to self-fulfillment and be our own king and everyone serve us. And here's the message of Christianity. Here's the message of Jesus, that he is the king. And yet he came to serve and to die 
in our place to make himself a servant. To has all the power in the world and yet he came to give it away. It's the opposite of how we think about things, isn't it? It's the opposite of redemption that we think. It's the opposite of salvation that we have for our lives. Because it would be great if we had all power, right? It would be great if everybody would serve us, right? That's the salvation we want. If everybody would just listen to me a little bit more and do what I want a little bit more quickly, everything would be great. Yeah, we would make ourselves king. It's so hard for us to serve and to lay down and be humble and compassionate. And to give our lives away. And to give our power away. Because we're constantly tempted to fight to keep it. To get more of it. You see, salvation has always been and will only be through weakness. Not self-exertion. Relationship with God is not through self-exertion. Relationship with God is not based on us being good. Relationship with God is not us being more powerful or more intelligent or better than other people. Relationship with God, salvation, redemption has always been and will only be through weakness. Not self-exertion, not will, not being a good person, not being better than others. And the reason Here's some ways that you can know if your life is based on self-exertion. These are ways that I know that my life at times is based on self-exertion and self-centeredness. Quickly, I'll try to cover these. Here are things you can think about. Let's think about these three categories, forgiveness. If your life and my life is based on self-exertion and being a good person, we will always struggle with forgiveness. Because either on one hand, we'll feel like we're too good to forgive anybody. Or on the other hand, we're too angry and justified in that. Think about your job. If my life at the core, no matter what I say, if my life at the core is based on self-exertion and being good and being a good person, then that means I'll always try to build my identity around my job or I will always be trying to find fulfillment through my job. Rather than, well, we'll get to that in a moment. And here's a third one. When difficult things happen, if our life is really about self-exertion and being good, and if our relationship with God or our relationship with others is really based at our core around us, around self-exertion, being a good person, then what that means is when trials come, when suffering happens, when the unexpected goes down, if our lives are based on self-exertion, we will either think on one hand, you know, God, I've done all the right things. Why is this happening to me? Because I have such a good record. Or, yeah, I'm a horrible person and I deserve this. And this is God's punishment for me. And beloved, I'm telling you, those things are not the way the gospel tells us to look at those things in our lives. God doesn't want us to look at our job as a way to fulfillment or to build our identity around. God doesn't want us to think about 
having to forgive others in the world based upon either how superior we are to others or being justified in our anger, so we can't. And he never wants us to think about trials and suffering and enduring hardship in our life as if it's happening because God's punishing us or why in the world is this happening and being angry with God because I've done all these things so well. That's not the way God wants us to look at any of those things. And it's all because of Jesus. See, this is where Jesus dying and being raised from the dead has power in our lives. It's not just verbiage that we say we believe. This is actually the power that has to work in us to change everything. You see, the message of Christianity through weakness is this. Because I am saved by God's unconditional love and because God accepts me because of his desire to do so through Jesus, because of all of that, I can say this. I'm a sinner and I don't deserve an easy life. And I know no matter what happens, I'm loved by God and I am accepted by God and through him because of what Jesus has done and the spirit working in me, no matter what happens, I'm accepted and loved by God. And if he can forgive me of everything that I've done, then I sure, by his strength, can forgive others. And if he loves me and has accepted me, then that means I don't have to build my identity around my job or try to find fulfillment through it. And it means if God accepts me and loves me and my relationship with God is by grace because of what Jesus has done, that power works in me to understand trials and suffering in life as the way that God is loosening my grip on self and tightening my grip and dependence on Jesus. Because anything that I've been through, Jesus has been through before me. And anything I could go through, he's there with me. See, the gospel is God's power that changes the way that we live. That's why we all have to get into this story. This is why this is the story we all need to be a part of. And when that gospel starts working in our lives, this is why. And I want to encourage you. This is why you want to talk with me and John Paul and others about how can you raise your children with the gospel. This is why you want to talk with me and John Paul and others about how in the world can the gospel be the center of your marriage. This is why I get to talk to you about how in the world can you integrate your faith with your job and the specific and unique challenges that you have in your jobs. And how in the world can I bring my faith into that? This is why we care about people outside of this building. This is why God is working into us to be outward facing. This is why God works into us that we want to be ordinary people doing ordinary things with gospel intentionality. This is why. You want to give and invest into God's kingdom because this is the only place that you're going to hear that message. You're not going to hear it anywhere else. This is the only kingdom that won't fail. This is the only body that cannot fail because Christ won't let it happen. His church will never be defeated. This is why 
in your work and in your businesses. You care about building community. Several of you have talked with me about this. This is why some of you are involved about racial reconciliation in our community. Because you care about the gospel and the work that it is doing in your own life. And therefore, how that relates to others. This is why you're interested in fostering. This is why you're interested in adopting. All of the things that God is doing in your life. This is why. Because of the gospel. Because of what Jesus has done. It's not just lip service. The power is taking grip on our lives. Be encouraged and keep going. Want the gospel. Want the power of Jesus more and more in your life. Want it in my life. You see, for the praise of all the crowds in these verses to be legitimate, for it to be legit, you have to have Jesus as Redeemer King. You have to see him as the servant king. You have to hear his message as salvation is through weakness and the fact that he laid down his life for you and for me. Because this king is coming back. And when he comes back, he's going to make all things new. And as we read this morning in Isaiah, and we could have read hundreds of other passages, you start reading stuff about creation being set free. You start reading about mountains clapping and things going on that we can't even imagine. Beloved, if creation is going to express itself in that way, what in the world do you think you're going to be like? What's it going to be like for us if the mountains and creation itself is praising God and acknowledging his glory? And if creation feels like it's in bondage right now waiting for the return of Christ, what about you? What about me? What are we going to be like? I couldn't even begin to tell you the half of it. But I know that if Jesus is not our Redeemer King, it won't be good. But this whole story is telling us about this king, this redeemer, who came humble, lowly, as a servant. And beloved, that is what brings us to the table. Remember that as we take together today, uh, before you come forward, if you would look around uh, where you're sitting, if there are things that you need to move, push away, put up on a seat, please do that so people won't trip as they come forward. Uh, remember that if you have any allergies at all, uh, at each station we have our allergen-free bread. So feel free to use that. And if you don't desire to break off of the common loaf, obviously feel free to use that as well. Um, remember that as we come to the table, this is the place for those who know Jesus as Redeemer King. This is the place where we realize that relationship with God is not by self-exertion. It's not by being a good person. It's not by being smarter than others and making a better choice. Relationship with God is based on grace and that God has done everything for us in Jesus. And if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ as your Redeemer King, meaning 
you haven't come to the point in your life in which you realize how much Jesus served you by laying down his life for you, then we would ask that you would not take, that you would not eat the bread and drink the cup. We have enough hypocrisy in the church. We wouldn't want you to add to it. Don't eat and drink and declare something that isn't true about you. But for those of you that know you're a hypocrite, for those of us that know that we need this lowly servant king, the one who gave his life for us to set us free, then beloved, this is for you. You need to come and eat and taste and see that God is good and that we are a blessed people, that his gospel is working in us and we are changing. His gospel is working. And we have a new heavens and new earth to look forward to. I'm going to ask the elders and deacons, those that are helping and assisting this morning, if you would come forward. On the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, he broke it. He said, this is my body given for you. Take and eat. After he had given thanks, he also took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. It is shed for the forgiveness of your sins. Drink from it, all of you. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim my death until I return. Because I am coming back. I am the final king. I am the king that makes all things new. Beloved, if you'd pray with me. Lord Jesus, we thank you that this cup, that the bread is a celebration of your life for us. That you substituted yourself so that we would have life with God. So that we would know your spirit so that we would live in accordance with his power, so that we would look more like our Savior. So we ask Jesus that as we take and eat, that we would feed on you by faith and that you would continue to minister to us as we participate in your death and resurrection, your hope for us. So help us to eat and drink in a way in which we connect with you and find you afresh, our servant, redeemer, king. In your name we pray, amen.